and we come to a passage that is especially fitting for this uh, Sunday. I invite you to follow along as I read to you the living word of the living God. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall. Like heat in a dry place, you subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. The veil that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab shall be trampled down in his place, as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it, as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride, together with the skill of his hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. In the song, Wait For It, one of the best songs in Lin-Manuel Miranda's musical, Hamilton, the character Aaron Burr catalogs the death of his illustrious parents and grandparents that left him, at age two, an orphan. In Miranda's version, Burr sings, Death doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. It takes and it takes and it takes. And if there's a reason I'm still alive, when everyone who loves me has died, I'm willing to wait for it. This past year, the shadow of death has been especially close. But this past year has been one that has only enhanced our yearning for that hope which Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, the first Resurrection Sunday was the first foretaste. In the coming weeks and months, Lord willing, we will regather, we will resemble more fully. We may share a meal with some friends and family for the first time in a year or more. And as we do so, we will be enjoying a sample of the future that God sets before us who wait for him a joyful, global feast free of tears and free of death. 
though we must wait for it, one day death will no longer take and take and take. And through Isaiah, God gives us this glorious picture in two songs and in one invitation. The two songs of chapter 5 wrap around the invitation in the middle of the chapter. So as we look at this first song, it's just a reminder that Isaiah is like a grand symphony of five movements. Here in chapter 25, we're actually in the midst of the great climax of the second movement. And songs are woven all through this section of chapters 24 through 27. Song is the natural, joyful response to love and to rescue. Our first song this morning is in verses 1 through 5. It's sung in a singular voice, an individual singer representing all of God's people, and the singer celebrates God's identity and his character, but especially his relationship with the Lord. He is my God, and I will exalt and praise him. The Lord evokes this praise because he does wonderful things. Isaiah is referencing the wonders that God did in the past in delivering Israel out of their bondage and oppression as slaves in the ancient Egyptian empire. And as uh, Judah now is facing the reality of a new empire, Assyria, breathing down their necks, Isaiah anticipates new wonders still to come. And we'll see that that actually expands out far bigger than political threats. But these interventions are not course corrections. It's not like God is waiting for his GPS to reroute him after he's made a wrong turn like I often have to do when I'm driving. Though it feels circuitous to us, these are God's plans, as Isaiah says, formed of old. It's the same journey that God pl plotted out for history in eternity past with the goal to reach eternity future. And as Paul says, writing to the church in ancient Ephesus years later, this was God's plan from before the foundation of the world. And that plan is to reduce the strong, fortified, luxurious, but ruthful, ruthless city of the world to pacified rubble. Throughout Isaiah, God depicts history as a contest between two cities, the human city and the divine city. The human city founded on strength and, and um, pride and arrogance and self-protection. The human city is founded uh, in, is a symbol for us trying to find our security and our peace and our prosperity apart from God. While the residents of the divine city, which God says he will build on this mountain, like in verse 6, find their security, peace, and prosperity in God and God alone. And all human communities through history have been a mix of, these, of citizens of these two cities living together in the cities of the world. The singer celebrates God's character because he is good to all and especially good to those that human beings and human societies tend to treat the worst. God's character is on display in verses 4 and 5. He's a stronghold for the poor and needy. He's a shelter from storm and shade from heat. He's like a wall protecting from the hot breath of the ruthless. 
or like a cloud on a hot summer day that gives relief from the unbearable heat of noon or to apply something that might be more relevant for some of us. He's like a warm winter coat when the heat doesn't work. The goodness of God's character is then elevated to a whole nother level with this next section in verses 6 through 8 where we see God inviting as a lavish host people from uh, across all of humanity to this amazing feast. Later today, many of us will probably be sitting down together to a meal with friends and family. And those gatherings may be smaller this year than normal, though uh, hopefully they'll be larger than uh, the ones from last year. But we still look forward to them with excitement. And uh, many of us have special meals prepared. And here we see that God himself is the chef and host for an incomparable banquet. The table is loaded with rich food, comfort food, well-aged wine, yes, wine. Uh, a feast so good that Isaiah stops to repeat and emphasize, no, 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 do not rush on. Stop and look at this menu. It's rich food and really, really good wine. No matter what your favorite flavors, there will be something delicious there for you. You know, a common critique of Christianity that's, is that it's all self-denial and unhealthy suppression of our natural good desires. And actually, all the best Christian the theologians recognize that God created us for happiness, but to find that happiness in Him. Our problem is that we don't trust Him and try to find our happiness everywhere else. Our desires are actually haywire, and our diets show it. Some of us eat too much food because that's the easiest way to feel better about life and, uh, when we're having a hard time. Uh, some of us eat too little because we have these haywire desires to appear a certain way to other people. Nobody really thinks that all of our desires are good. Some of us have desires to hurt other people or to mistreat people of a certain ethnic group. Most of us agree those desires are bad, except the people that feel them. So maybe God knows better than us which of our desires will lead to genuine happiness for us and others and which won't. This suspicion of Christianity as uh, sort of self-loathing carries over into our skepticism uh, that we often hear in our society about heaven, as if it's going to be a very boring place where we don't get to do all the fun stuff that we're able to do now, right? I'd rather be here on earth partying. Uh, actually, God says in the Bible that heaven is actually going to be a party. The new creation will be the party. And this isn't just a metaphor, we uh, last week watched Guardians of the Galaxy, and if you've watched it, you know that one of the characters, Drax, comes from an uh, alien race who don't understand metaphors. So one character explains, his people are completely literal. Metaphors go over his head, to which Drax responds, nothing goes over my head. My reflexes are too fast. I will catch it. Sometimes as Christians, we're like Drax. God says things and we think, oh, it must be a metaphor. Let me figure it out. 
No, stop swiping the air over your head trying to figure out what God might be talking about as something different. The meal is on the table right in front of you in this passage, and you see it throughout Scripture. What did uh, Jesus rose from the grave, soul and body. Almost every single time the resurrected Jesus appears, we heard it in the call to confession, almost every single time he appears, he eats something with his disciples, which is a continuation of his habits that he ate with people all through his life and ministry. And before he went to the cross, gave it, Jesus gave us a meal to share both in the memory of his life and death and in anticipation of his return, a meal about which Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And there are so many passages that tell us that there's a feast waiting for us in a new heavens and new earth. We are not going to be free-floating spirits. We are going to be resurrected people with souls and bodies who will feast together. Jesus is talking about this meal that Isaiah anticipates. And every time we gather around a table, we are, in a sense, looking forward to the meal to come. Every time you welcome a friend, a guest, or a stranger to your table, it's an opportunity for you to give a little taste to your guests of the joyful meal that we will have together in God's presence. But we do see in this passage that God has prepared a separate plate for himself. Now, in some of our families, I won't point out anybody, but it's possible that some of us like to have our own separate plate, a little bit different than somebody else. Maybe it's because we have our own favorites. But verse 7 says that God is not setting aside something better for him, but quite the opposite. He has something to swallow down, which is death itself. Like the sheet over a corpse at a crime scene, Death is spread over all of humanity. It's the unavoidable, inescapable reality that so many of us try so desperately hard to deny or ignore, and which is why this last year has probably been so difficult psychologically for so many of us. We are continually confronted with a reality that we like to avoid. But God does not ignore death. In this passage, he tells us that he stares it in the face. And the gospel tells us that though God is immortal, the immortal Son of God assumed a mortal human nature so that Jesus might do this. He might swallow up death in our place for us. Isaiah repeats it twice for emphasis. God swallows up death. God swallows up death. Jesus, in Jesus, God picks up the tab for our selfish self-gorging. And then the scope of the guest list is limitless. Repeatedly, Isaiah emphasizes that the, the feast is spread, verse 6, for all peoples. Its benefits are intended for, again in verse 7, all peoples and all nations. There is no category of person excluded. Every person you meet, no matter how unlikely they may seem to you, may be your future fellow guest at this meal. In fact, some of them may end up there because you're the one who passes on God's invitation to them. All peoples and all nations with verse 8, there's another all. God drying tears from all faces. Sure, many of you recognize these beautiful words. God will wipe away 
tears from all faces. Isaiah says later in chapter 30, you shall weep no more. We probably know them best if you're familiar with the book, the last book of the Bible, the Revelation of John, which quotes these words not once but twice. In chapter 7, Revelation 7, God will wipe away every tear from their eye. In Revelation 21, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I'm sure many of us have wept this past year for things that we've lost, for people that we've lost. God knows that you have, and he couldn't be any more clear. There is not one face who hopes in him that he will skip. He invites us to imagine it. Jesus greeting each and every one taking your face in his resurrected hands, your resurrected face, taking his resurrected fingers and wiping the tears off your resurrected cheeks, saying, I understand. I wept too when I stared into the face of death and separation from my father, but I've taken care of it. We're here now. Look, I'm making all things new. No more death, no more tears. I'm alive again, and so are you. In response, the individual of voice expands into a chorus in the second song. We have waited, and God has saved. The song reminds us that the normal experience of believers through history has been one of waiting. When Rebecca and I were in college, there was uh, several stretches where we were in different places for more than one semester in a row. And uh, after one of those stretches of being apart, I think probably six or seven months, I flew down to visit her where she lived in Florida. As we landed at the airport, we're all sitting, on, uh, we're all sitting in uh, the plane uh, waiting to get up to the uh, gate so that we could disembark. And uh, there was some sort of delay uh, so we're all sitting there um, on the, the runway of uh, Fort Myers Airport. And the passenger next to me, who hadn't said anything the entire flight, just turns to me and says, Tom Petty was right. The waiting is the hardest part. And uh, in his word, God does not squash that experience. He validates it. As the writers of the Bible ask over and over throughout the generations, how long, O oh Lord... And yet he also lays in front of us a future so sweet that we can press on and endure. It was hard to endure yet another delay at that end of the trip. I did not come to sit on the runway of Fort Myers Airport, nor did, neither did the passenger next to me. But it was worth it because I was about to see my beloved. And it is worth it for us because as we look forward, we look forward to the one who loves us greeting us, the one who loves us more than we can know. But Isaiah reminds us that as vast and open as God's invitation is, some will refuse to join. Isaiah rotates through a series of characters who symbolize human rejection of God. Sometimes uh, that's pictured as Babylon or Tyre in earlier chapters, and sometimes it's even pictured as unfaithful Jerusalem. These are the recognizable 
uh, symbolic characters in Isaiah, kind of like uh, the characters you have in a political cartoon. Here, uh, Moab is used by Isaiah. Moab was one of Judah's closest neighbors, intertwined with her history in many ways, uh, including uh, um, uh, even earlier where God gave a relatively sympathetic picture of their upheaval when foreign conquerors are going to send her citizens fleeing. But here, he uses Moab as a picture for humanity who will not accept the offer of help and aid given by God. And the picture is very vivid. It's uh, probably a, a picture that's familiar to those of us who have spent any amount of time on a farm, especially in spring, the time of year that, I, uh, that we called, uh, growing up in Maine, mud season. In the face of the onslaught, Moab is like a person who has fallen face down and is being held face down in the mud by the trampling of the feet of other uh, fleeing refugees and marching soldiers, mashed into the mud like straw is trampled down into a dunghill. That's, isn't that kind of a polite way to say that, right? Isaiah uh, probably is not intending to be that polite. Uh, he's saying Moab is going to end up mired in manure. Yet Moab will persist in trying to solve their problems on their own. Isaiah gives us a picture of Moab stretching their hands out and trying to swim their way out of the muck. It's comical and ridiculous. How far are you going to get trying to swim through a pile of muddy manure? Not very far. I hope you haven't tried it. I hope you don't know by experience. But it's also disgusting, and God is telling us, this is how foolish and filthy you look when you try to fix your problems without me. It's a God, God's eye view of verse 12, pompous, prideful, self-reliance when we rest in the skill of our own hands. You might be thinking, well, I'm not that gross, right? I mean, I showed up for church. Now, centuries later, the Apostle Paul was a devout zealous, law-abiding, church-attending, spiritually serious young man who was being recognized and promoted by his elders. But looking back in his later life, he tells the church in Philippi, I considered that all rubbish. After he had seen Jesus, he realized that all his most strenuous spiritual efforts were in reality, uh, better translated, dung like swimming in muddy manure just like Moab. He finally saw that he needed someone else to rescue him. He couldn't rescue himself by the skill of his very religious spiritual hands. Here, Moab trusts themselves instead of uh, hoping in God himself to lift the, him out of his plight. Trusting in the skill of our own hands can look very religious or very irreligious. It's just trusting our own actions and plans and schemes to try to fix what's wrong in our lives instead of trusting for God to take care of us or waiting for God to uh, bring us through the difficulties we face. In contrast, those who find shelter on this mountain, on the solid rock of God revealed in the person of Jesus, his hand rests on them. You see it there in verse 10. When I was young, my grandparents had a house on Crystal Lake in Gray, Maine. 
I wasn't a particularly strong swimmer. I was uh, so scrawny that I had very little natural buoyancy. But one day I tried swimming out to their floating dock that was a little ways out from the shore. And I was a good ways out, but not quite there, when all of a sudden a, a boat went by on the lake, a motorboat, that put up uh, enough of a wave that I then, I was right, a wave came at me just as I was turning to breathe. And so instead of air, I got a wave in my face. And uh, I panicked, and I couldn't breathe, and uh, I was sinking. On the shore, my aunt uh, saw what was happening, and fortunately, she was a much stronger swimmer. So she rushed into the water, swam out to me, grabbed me, and hauled me to the safety of the deck. And I don't actually remember any of that part. I just remember the wave and then a few minutes later sitting on the dock, shivering in cold and fear. The hand of God rests on his people. It's a hand of protection, like an adult's hand on the shoulder of a child in the middle of an unfamiliar city. It's a hand of calm, reassuring strength and presence. The hand that pulls us out of the water when we're swamped and panicking and drowning. Which hand will we trust? Will we trust God's or our own? Of course, years later, I actually took a water safety training course. And if you take water safety training, you'll learn that you are, you're never supposed to actually do what my aunt did. I'm glad she did, anyways. Uh, if you're a lifeguard and you're helping a swimmer in distress, you don't grab them yourself. You toss them a flotation device and haul them in because a panicked swimmer can take down not only themselves, but their rescuer. In the gospel, we learn that Jesus did not throw us a flotation device because that wasn't an option. He couldn't save us from a safe distance. If there had been an option like that, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit would have, have followed that plan instead. Jesus would never have endured rupture with his Father that was required for the bearing of our sin if there had been any other way. But we were too distressed. And so like my aunt, he plunged into the water. He plunged into the muck and the mire and the manure, heedless of his own safety, knowing that our rescue would cost him his life. Because the rescue we need is not simply from death, like the loss of smell or fever. Death is simply a symptom of a deeper spiritual malady. Our spiritual reflex of trying to swim our way out of our folly and filth. Jesus did not die just because we die, but because we sin. And we die because we sin. Because we choose evil, we try to live without God, and so in doing that, we actually choose darkness and death instead of happiness and life. And the cross of Jesus is the antidote for our sins, so that though we die, we might enjoy also his resurrection, life on the other side of death, life with God the Father and the Son and the Spirit, because Jesus first swallowed death for us. This is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. There's reason you and I are still alive, that he might make us and through us, those around us, willing to wait for him. Let us pray. 
Our Lord and our God, we thank and praise you again for the gift of your son. We thank you for the humility of his incarnate life. We thank you for the righteousness of his life. We thank you for the humiliation and shame of the cross. But we thank you that you use that injustice to give us mercy and grace. And we thank you that you give us also the resurrection to testify to us that his sacrifice for us has been successful and we will be freed from the consequences of sin. We will be freed from death because Jesus himself is free from death and will bring us through it. We thank you and praise you for this hope in Jesus' name. Amen.